figuring out how to build a sustainable creative culture, one that didn't just pay lip service to the importance of things like honesty, excellence, communication, originality, and self-assessment, but really committed to them, no matter how uncomfortable that became, wasn't a singular assignment. It was a day-in, day-out, full-time job, and one that I wanted to do. Today, we're going to be discussing Ed Catmull's inspiring book, Creativity, Inc., which is really a must-read for anyone who's looking to build this creative culture around innovation or any type of creative industry. Ed Catmull is the co-founder of Pixar Animation Studios, and he was actually the president of both Pixar and Walt Disney Animation Studios for many years, so he has this wealth of experience to share from. We're going to be diving into his secrets of managing Pixar's culture from embracing risks to failure and accepting failure, leaving many insightful takeaways for us as entrepreneurs and builders ourselves. So get ready to learn about some of the top tips and tricks from building one of my favorite companies, Pixar. So we'll start off with this really core insight by Catmull in the 70s and 80s, the Silicon Valley landscape at the time. And this was what really steered him to create a creative culture and what is more prominently a sustainable creative culture within Pixar. He would say of the Silicon Valley early times, someone had a creative idea, obtained funding, brought on a lot of smart people, and developed and sold a product that got a boatload of attention. That initial success begat more success, luring the best engineers and attracting customers who had interesting and high-profile problems to solve. But something was blinding them and keeping them from seeing the problems that threatened to upend them. As a result, their companies expanded like bubbles, then burst. And we see now his management style is to focus on the problems within a company to ensure this long-term sustainability. Your company's gonna be around for a very long time. So he would say, can paying careful attention to the missteps of others help us be more alert to our own? I began to see my role as a leader more clearly. I would devote myself to learning how to build not just a successful company, but a sustainable creative culture. That is a key tenant for Ed Catmull that we should remember as we go through this whole biography of his. So we're gonna start off his early days as a kid. He would watch Disney animations and as many people were back then, he was a big fan of Disney and how they created the Mickey Mouse animations. And to him, Walt Disney was really this superhero. He would say, Walt Disney was one of my two boyhood idols. The other was Albert Einstein. To me, even at a young age, they represented two poles of creativity. Disney was all about inventing the new. He brought things into being, both artistically and technologically, that did not exist before. Catmill grew up in Salt Lake City in the go-go years. It was the 50s and 60s 
America was booming. It was these great times and invention was everywhere. America was really this powerhouse country. And he was being raised in a time that Disney animation was seeing this massive success. It was the Mickey Mouse and all the cartoons from Walt Disney's era. So as a kid, he was inspired by these animations. And from a very early age, he knew he wanted to go into this animated film business. It was one of his earliest goals to create an animated feature film. So a few years later, Catmull goes on to University of Utah, and he's studying there computer graphics. And computer graphics, this was a very new industry. It was being first developed with his professor pretty much creating the field, creating the field of computer graphics where Walt Disney was the older method of hand-drawn animations and hand-drawn animated graphics, animated films. So he was at University of Utah in this new burgeoning film. His professor is the one literally defining the industry and all the people around him, all his peers would go on to be these founding fathers of core technologies around computer graphics. He would say, one of my classmates, Jim Clark, would go on to found Silicon Graphics and Netscape. Another, John Warnock, would co-found Adobe, known for Photoshop and the PDF file format, amongst other things. Still another, Alan Kay, would lead on a number of fronts, from object-oriented programming to windowing graphical user interfaces. We were young, driven by the sense that we were inventing the field from scratch, and that was exciting beyond words. This goes back to a main lesson we learned from the Founders book about the history of PayPal, where Jimmy Sony, in our conversation, he was sharing how you really always want to be surrounded by this top talent and by people who are either better than you or really just truly smart, ingenious people. So he is surrounded here by Jim Clark, someone who founded multiple billion-dollar companies, John Warnock, the co-founder of Adobe, a massive design company still today, Alan Kay, one of the leading people behind Apple. He's surrounded by all these sharp people as the computer graphics and animation field is just getting started. So we see that Catmill is involved from the very get-go of this industry. And once he finished his grad school at University of Utah, which was that pioneer in computer graphics, he was hired by this just a rich entrepreneur, someone who, as his hobby, wanted to integrate computer graphics into animation. And to Catmull, this was really a dream job out of the gate because it allowed him to at least begin on his initial goal of creating a feature film, animated film. So this was his very early goal. And now this rich, wealthy entrepreneur came to him and said, yeah, I have a similar goal. You have some spare money to invest in this. So I'm going to hire you and you can work on this. He goes on to share one of his main learnings from this manager by saying he had total confidence in the people he hired. This was something I admired and later sought to do myself. I had conflicting feelings when I met Alvi because, frankly, he seemed more qualified to lead the lab than I was. I can still remember the uneasiness in my gut, that instinctual twinge spurred by a potential threat. This, I thought, 
could be the guy who takes my job one day. I hired him anyway. We saw this very same thing with Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller was talking about hiring people who beat you. There was someone who literally beat him in a lawsuit. And next thing you know, he's hiring that person. This is the same lesson that Catmull is learning. Find people who are better than them and hire them and give them this autonomy. Give them the confidence when you hire them. He said, and ever since I've made a policy of trying to hire people who are smarter than I am. That is a great lesson for us. I've made a policy of trying to hire people who are smarter than I am. So we're seeing he's surrounded by top people in grad school and he's learning hire great people. Surround yourself with smarter people because then you will all grow and push yourselves to new lengths. Now, the next step in Catmull's career is really interesting. So he's working for the entrepreneur for a few years and eventually computer graphics weren't really being taken seriously in Hollywood. No one was really paying attention to this industry until Star Wars came onto the scene. So he shares about this time. On May 25th, 1977, Star Wars opened in theaters across America. The film's mastery of visual effects and his record-shattering popularity at the box office would change the industry forever. Industrial Light and Magic Studio had already taken the lead developing new tools in visual effects and sound design. So with this, Catmull was hired by George Lucas so in his very early years, he's learning from George Lucas, one of these legends in the content business, to lead Lucasfilm's computer animation department and add new special effects to the Star Wars films and the Star Wars brand, Lucasfilm brand. So right as computer animation and computer graphics are getting popular in Hollywood, now Catmull is working with the company that is spurring that movement. So we're seeing... Catmull is constantly in the right place at the right time. It's really remarkable. We're going to see this over and over again throughout his career. Now, one of the core lessons that Catmull learned from George Lucas was to bet on yourself. And we've seen this lesson again in many books as well, betting on yourself. He would say, as a young filmmaker in the wake of American Graffiti's success, he was advised to demand a higher salary on his next movie, Star Wars. That would be the expected move in Hollywood. Bump up your quote. Not for George, though. He skipped the raise altogether and asked and said to retain ownership of licensing and merchandising rights to Star Wars. The studio that was distributing the film, 20th Century Fox, readily agreed to his request, thinking it was not giving up much. George would prove them wrong, setting the stage for major changes in the industry he loved. He bet on himself and won. This is such a great takeaway. I think it's so important for entrepreneurs because you're seeing you need that skin in the game. You want to have that personal investment. And if it's your own company, your own idea, your own baby that you're taking care of, you really should be betting on yourself. Why take all this risk if you're not going to bet on yourself and share in the economics if you succeed? So 
This was a lesson for George Lucas. He bet on himself with Star Wars, and obviously he hit it big. Star Wars ended up becoming a huge franchise that, as we know from the last episode, also sold to Disney down the line. And Catmull is later on going to take a very similar lesson with his invention of Pixar, Pixar's animated studio. It was around this time as well that he actually met his eventual co-founder, John Lasseter, who many people consider the creative brains behind much of Pixar's early success. Many of their big hits was with John Lasseter either as a director or one of the core components behind the Pixar films. So at the time, Catmull was touring the Lucasfilm campus and he ran into John Lasseter, who back then, I believe he was a Disney animator. He was at Disney Animation. And John Lasseter had what Catmull really describes as this crazy idea of an elaborate animated film of a brave little toaster. That was literally the name of the idea, brave little toaster. It seemed very far-fetched for Disney. They were in more of a risk-averse path. But for Pixar and for Catmull, he thought it was a really interesting idea. We should spark our creativity and our risk-taking with these crazy, elaborate ideas. So him and Lasseter started talking more about different animated film ideas and their collective interests in creating an animated feature film. And soon after, Lasseter joined their team because he was so impressed by the animated computer technology that Catmull was using, he had created within Lucasfilm. The interesting thing here was when they were naming this animated computer technology, they named it Pixar after what they said was a fake Spanish verb meaning to make pictures. So now we see Lasseter is part of the team within Lucasfilm. They have pretty much a separate division within Lucasfilm called Pixar, and they're working with Catmull's animated computer technology. It's literal hardware, expensive hardware, over $100,000 for one of these computers. And unfortunately, at the time, George Lucas was going through a divorce. This was around 1983. George Lucas is going through a divorce, and this was forcing Pixar's image computer technology to be sold off. Because he had to split his assets, he wasn't able to retain these smaller initiatives like Pixar. It's this small company that's focusing on image, computer, hardware, and graphics within his company. So he had to sell it off. He spent a few years trying to find a buyer, and no one was biting. Everyone's like, what is this expensive hardware that I have to buy? Until a couple years later, about two or three years later, Steve Jobs came into the scene because at this point he was on the outs at Apple. He wasn't involved. He was now kicked out of Apple. And Steve Jobs came in as the buyer of Pixar. So now we're going to see the time when Steve Jobs joins up with Catmull and Lasseter to take Pixar from a hardware company to the animated feature film company we know of today. So Steve Jobs at the time, he was really skeptical as anyone would be. He was asking, what can the Pixar image computer do that other machines on the market can't? Who do you envision using it? What's your long-term plan? 
He eventually agreed to buy out Pixar for $5 million and he would fund another $5 million for the operations and Jobs would get 70% of the stock, the employees would get 30%. Now, over the ensuing years, they kept making these efforts to sell the Pixar image computer. And as I said, this was expensive hardware. This is literally a computer with super advanced graphics technology and animation technology that they're trying to sell B2B to other businesses. But that is failing miserably. And Steve Jobs is deep in his own pocket to fund this initiative, to fund this endeavor. So they would say of the time, at Pixar's lowest point, as we foundered and failed to make a profit, Steve had sunk $54 million of his own money into the company, a significant chunk of his net worth and more money than any venture capital firm would have considered investing, given the sorry state of our balance sheet. So this was when the team decided they should just go for the original mission of working on computer animation films. Clearly, the hardware bet is not working. In Lasseter, Catmull, they all have this idea of animated feature films. So Steve decides hardware sales is not our business. Let's pivot into films. As we now get into the history of Pixar, the film company that we know and love today, we're going to learn many of the core tenets of Catmull's operating playbook and his philosophy behind managing Pixar, the creative, sustainable culture. The first of which is really the Kaizen or Toyota production system that we see in quality manufacturing. So he would say, the responsibility for finding and fixing problems should be assigned to every employee, from the most senior manager to the lowliest person on the production line. If anyone at any level spotted a problem in the manufacturing process, they should be encouraged and expected to stop the assembly line. They installed a cord that anyone could pull in order to bring production to a halt. Before long, Japanese companies were enjoying unheard of levels of quality, productivity, and market share. This was when companies like Toyota and Sony rose to the top of their industries with this approach, this Kaizen approach of continuous improvement and really empowering anyone within the company to, like they said, stop the production line and suggest improvements. And we'll see, this becomes a core tenant of Catmull's when he's managing Pixar as well. He says, Deming's approach in Toyota's too gave ownership of and responsibility for a product's quality to the people who are most involved in its creation. Instead of merely repeating an action, workers could suggest changes, call out problems, and this next element seemed particularly important to me feel the pride that came when they helped fix what was broken. So that part is so important. You want to have ownership. We go back to this a lot, this autonomy. Why do employees want to give autonomy to their people? Because you want to give them ownership over their projects. They could feel that pride when they fix what's broken or when they solve a really challenging problem. 
Catmull is learning this lesson is so important, especially in creative endeavors. People want to have ownership over their own products and over their films. And to do that, you want to let them offer those improvements and suggestions all across the line, all across the production line. We could go back to the story. They're now starting into the feature film business. They're trying to enter and they soon start negotiating with the incumbent in the space, which is Disney Animation. Disney had completed its what was known as the golden age of animation, where they created Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. And in this deal, they wanted the distribution and marketing rights with Pixar, who was really seen as this disruptive and emergent company. It was the company with the new disruptive technology using computer-aided animation. So Pixar, out of the gate, they create Toy Story, which as we know, it was this massive hit, their very first film, this massive hit. So Toy Story was about, as Catmull recalls, a cowboy named Woody whose world is rocked when a shiny new rival, a space ranger named Buzz Lightyear, arrives on the scene and becomes the apple of Andy's eye. Now, what's important about this is that from the very early stages, Pixar recognized that their stories, their feature films, whether animated or not, new technology or not, it has to truly be about the human emotion. How can we connect to the viewer? We're seeing here with Toy Story, these core themes of jealousy and acceptance. There's this real jealousy behind Woody when Andy picks out Buzz Lightyear as his new favorite toy. And then over time, they grow towards acceptance and becoming friends and really becoming their own community. And we're going to see this again and again. In Pixar, they call this story is king. Catmull will say, the first principle was story is king, by which we meant that we would let nothing, not the technology, not the merchandising possibilities get in the way of our story. We took pride in the fact that reviewers talk mainly about the way Toy Story made them feel and not about the computer wizardry that enabled us to get it up on the screen. We believe that this was the direct result of our always keeping story as our guiding light. This fits in well with the lesson we learned last episode with Bob Iger and Rune Arledge. Pay attention to the story. Pay attention to the narrative. People care about the story and the storytelling, these human emotions that you could connect to, especially in the content business, more than they do if you have the best technology in the world. Stories like Star Wars, it had these great graphics, but it was about these core stories around good versus bad. You know, Luke Skywalker versus his father, Darth Vader. We're seeing here, Woody and Buzz Lightyear was about this jealousy and eventual acceptance. So we're seeing from Pixar, story is king, and we want to focus on the story first as the guiding light. So in their early days, he describes one big early story challenge was when they were working on Toy Story 2. At the time, part of the deal with Disney, with Disney Animation, when they signed it, was that any of the sequels of movies, Disney would have 
these strong rights around the sequels, producing sequels, and they were intended to be direct-to-video release. So part of that direct-to-video, not a theatrical release, was that it really had a lower bar, a lower budget, and with that, more inexperienced directors because of this lower ability to finance the best people within Pixar. And the problem was Pixar could not feel that pride, that ownership around a lower budget film. They didn't want a low bar film. So with Toy Story 2, they decided to redo the entire movie with those true emotional motivators to keep intact their story is king mantra and really keep intact their reputation. They want to be known as someone with a high bar for content. So Catmull said, with the addition of Wheezy and Jesse, Woody's choice became more fraught. He could stay with someone he loves, knowing that he will eventually be discarded, or he could flee to a world where he could be pampered forever, but without the love that he was built for. That is a real choice, a real question. The way the creative team phrased it to each other was, would you choose to live forever without love? When you can feel the agony of that choice, you have a movie. With this story challenge, the Toy Story 2 challenge, Catmull learned another core lesson of his. We've now learned story is king, surround yourself with great people, the Kaizen production line of empowering anyone to suggest and stop the production line. Now, this next lesson is about how you manage and assign people in your organization. He would say, if you give a good idea to a mediocre team, they will screw it up. If you give a mediocre idea to a brilliant team, they will either fix it or throw it away and come up with something better. The takeaway here is worth repeating. Getting the team right is the necessary precursor to getting the ideas right. And I think the core metaphor we could think of here when we think of that Kaizen production line and a creative endeavor like Pixar, the people are truly the quality in that assembly line. The people are the ones who are going to determine how good your end product is. Lasseter would even say, he had this phrase, Quality is the best business plan. So with these creative endeavors, he realized you cannot have a low bar. You cannot have this low budget, put inexperienced directors. You want to have a high bar and find the highest quality people and put them on the movies that you're making. Put them on Toy Story 2 or put them on whatever movie is next on the slate. We're now going to start discussing the brain trust, which is really one of the most important parts of keeping the originality and creativity within Pixar's films. So Camel would describe the brain trust, which meets every few months or so to assess each movie we're making, is our primary delivery system for straight talk. Its premise is simple. Put smart, passionate people in a room together charge them with identifying and solving problems, and encourage them to be candid with one another. So this is really Pixar's way of getting this creative input from all the important stakeholders of a movie. And really it ensures this, what's known as psychological safety. People feel 
safe to open up and express their suggestions or their concerns, their fears about a movie in its early stages. And then the director can take that and run with it, or they could decide, maybe I don't agree with that feedback. He would say, they argued sometimes heatedly, but always about the project. They were not motivated by the kinds of things, getting credit for an idea, pleasing their supervisors, winning a point just to say that you did, that too often lurk beneath the surface of work-related interactions. So this brain trust, it's so important for Pixar because it is this source of candid feedback within directors. It's many directors, writers, different important people to the creative process of a film. And as the film develops, they are sharing their thoughts and very candid thoughts to that head director, to the one who's directly working on that film at the time. And in many ways, this created this cornered resource of animation talent. If you've read Seven Powers by Hamilton Helmer, it talks about the seven different strategic powers that companies can have in building and maintaining their business success. And with Pixar, many people will point to the literal animation talent, their directors behind their animated feature films, and say it was a cornered resource because at this time, all the top talent in computer animated films wanted to work at Pixar. They heard about this encouraging culture at Pixar and the brain trust would stimulate this even further. Giving this candid feedback allows all the directors to learn from each other and get better with each other under this guise of psychological safety. You're not criticized for giving feedback and you're not doing it for the wrong reasons. A very important factor of this as well is that in a creative endeavor, we have to accept that the initial product may suck. The original films, as they're first being created three, six months in, may not look very good. But over time and with enough editing, that will get much better. So you have to go through this reworking and reworking editing process, iterative process to improve the end product and create this quality. He would say... This idea that all the movies we now think of as brilliant were at one time terrible is a hard concept for many to grasp. But think about how easy it would be for a movie about talking toys to feel derivative, sappy, or overtly merchandise-driven. Think about how off-putting a movie about rats preparing food could be. Or how risky it must have seemed to start Wally with 39 dialogue-free minutes. We dare to attempt these stories, but we don't get them right on the first pass. And this is as it should be. Creativity has to start somewhere. And we are true believers in the power of bracing, candid feedback, and the iterative process. Reworking, reworking, and reworking again until a flawed story finds its through line or a hollow character finds its soul. Now, what level of editing do they go to? How do they give editing and pointers in these brain trust meetings? Notably, they do not prescribe how to fix the problems they diagnose. He's referring to the other directors or the other writers. They test weak points. They make suggestions. But it is up to the director to settle on a path forward. 
A new version of a movie is generated every three to six months, and the process repeats itself. It takes about 12,000 storyboard drawings to make one 90-minute reel. And because of the iterative nature of the process I'm describing, story teams commonly create 10 times that number by the time their work is done. So we're seeing two very important points of this brain trust meeting. The higher level is that editing is the most important. This is an iterative process. You have to accept that it's gonna not look very good. Any creative product is not gonna look very good right out of the gate. But with editing, with reworking, it will find its through line over time. And to give feedback, the feedback process in these brain trust meetings is not this form of micromanagement. It's not just, this is exactly the error you have to fix and how you fix it. You instead wanna give suggestions. Other directors may say, on another movie, I had a similar problem and this is how I approached it, but it's up to the director to actually solve that problem. And we see with editing, it takes much more input to get a quality output. It took 10 times the number of storyboard drawings to get the feature film. So that is the level of editing that we see in Pixar. It's like a 10x amount of content to get to the actual amount that they end up releasing to the public. And that's where we see, wow, what an incredible film that touched me emotionally. And it reminded me of my childhood or my feelings of jealousy or missing family this is because they rework it so many times to find that true underlying story. He goes on to say, you may be thinking, how is the brain trust different from any other feedback mechanism? There are two key differences as I see it. The first is that the brain trust is made up of people with a deep understanding of storytelling and usually people who have been through the process themselves. As we said, they listen to their fellow directors and writers. The second difference is that the brain trust has no authority. This is crucial. The director does not have to follow any of the specific suggestions given. After a brain trust meeting, it is up to him or her to figure out how to address the feedback. Brain trust meetings are not top down, do this or else affairs. Moreover, we don't want the brain trust to solve the director's problem because we believe that, in all likelihood, our solution won't be as good as the one the director and his or her creative team comes up with. We are seeing this again and again. Talented people want autonomy. Bob Iger, Buffett, they've all taught us this lesson with their decentralized management approaches. And we see it again, a creative director who's leading a feature film, feature animated film for Pixar, they want autonomy to make their own decisions on the problems. And the benefit with that, with giving talented people autonomy outside of the ownership, the pride that we talked about earlier, is that they oftentimes will find an even better solution than you will be as a outside skeptic because they've been working on that project day in and day out. They're so invested in that project. Once you point out the potential flaw or the mistake, and this is a talented person, you're giving the autonomy to them, oftentimes 
they will be able to recognize the solution to that mistake, the potential solution, better than you may even recognize the solution. So with the brain trust, we're seeing surround yourself in the brain trust with people you trust and have that same respect or have that same shared understanding, storytelling ability, like fellow directors or writers, and do not give them suggestions with authority. Do not make them specifically follow every suggestion. Just give them the suggestions or the flaws and let them run with it. See what solution they come up with. So now we're going to continue with Catmull's thoughts around failure in the creative and content business and how, in many ways, this can lead to an innovator's dilemma. From a very early age, the message is drilled into our heads. Failure is bad. Failure means you didn't study or prepare. Failure means you slacked off or worse, aren't smart enough to begin with. Thus, failure is something to be ashamed of. I'm not the first to say that failure, when approached properly, can be an opportunity for growth. They are an inevitable consequence of doing something new and as such should be seen as valuable. Without them, we'd have no originality. So this is a big lesson for us, especially in the creative business. For one, you need to try new things to find that originality. And with trying new things, you are ultimately going to fail in some of your endeavors. That is just natural. And the other big lesson is that failure can truly lead to this post-traumatic growth with the right mindset. If you believe that failure is really an opportunity for growth, it is not, I failed, I'm never going to be able to accomplish this, or I'm never going to be able to pass this test, create this movie, whatever the objective may be, then surely it's going to be much harder to do that in the future. Whereas alternatively, if you have this growth mindset and you believe that failure can lead to growth, it's this opportunity for growth, and you must try new things to find that originality, to find that creative success, then you will much more likely actually create a new product or create a new content piece, like in Pixar's case, movies, that people fall in love with for its originality. So one of the famous directors, one of the core directors behind Pixar, his name is Andrew Stanton. He's known around Pixar for saying a couple phrases. He says, fail early and fail fast and be wrong as fast as you can. He thinks of failure like learning to ride a bike. It isn't conceivable that you would learn to do this without making mistakes, without toppling over a few times. So Stanton is teaching us it's natural to fail if you're trying something new, but in any creative endeavor, you have to embrace failure if you're going to find that end originality and really a quality product in the end. Now, the problem and where Innovator's Dilemma comes in, we spoke about this the last couple episodes, managers are oftentimes rational in their decision-making because they fear failure. So Catmull describes this problem. He says, in a fear-based, failure-averse culture, people will consciously or unconsciously avoid risk. 
They will seek instead to repeat something safe that's been good enough in the past. Their work will be derivative, not innovative. He goes on to describe where he saw this problem most clearly with Disney and Disney animation as Pixar was rising up the ranks. So Disney, he describes, they had this what's called a feed the beast culture. They had many successful animated films like we spoke about, Beauty and the Beast and Lion King, Aladdin. And the issue was that all that success raised the pressure and especially the fear of failure for the next project. So he would say, but the success of each new Disney film also did something else. It created a hunger for more. As the infrastructure of the studio grew to service, market, and promote each successful film, the need for more production in the pipeline only expanded. The stakes were simply too high to let all those employees at all those desks in all those buildings sit idle. This is a core lesson we learned from our Innovator's Dilemma episode. As you grow and become a larger company, you end up having these higher and higher growth expectations. And those expectations can cripple a company because as well, you end up adopting these high cost structures. You need to feed the beast. You need to keep up that fast pace of growth So you hire more people and you have to keep getting the next hit, the next Aladdin, the next Lion King. And the problem is the second that the next movie or the next product you put out is not a hit, now you're stuck with these high cost structures and not the high growth that you once expected. Catmull relates to this. He says, any company's profit margin depends in large part on how effectively it uses its people. The auto workers on the assembly line who are being paid whether the line is in motion or not. The stock boys in Amazon's warehouses who come to work regardless of how many shoppers are online that day. The lighting and shading experts, to pick one of dozens of examples in the world of animation, who must wait for many others to complete their duties on a particular shot before they can begin to do their work. These higher cost structures lead in to the next point where over time you will take smaller and smaller risks to feed the beast. If you have such high growth expectations and you have high costs, then that means you have this big fear of failure. You have this big fear of not hitting the growth expectations or of creating a project that does not surpass your costs in terms of revenues. So you're gonna take smaller and smaller risks because that is what feeds the beast. Catmull says, it is one of life's cruel ironies that when it comes to feeding the beast, success only creates more pressure to hurry up and succeed again. The biggest problem in the creative business with taking smaller and smaller risks, not being as creative, is that you lose that originality. You start to get those derivative films instead of innovators films. So this is the true innovators dilemma. And it's what really hit Disney at the time. And Pixar was on the other end of it. They were the emergent company with this new technology, computer animated feature films. And Catmull recognized very early on, I need to create a sustainable creative culture that from an early age does not fear failure. 
This fear of failure is one of the core tenets that we see repeating so often throughout Innovator's Dilemma. As we say, managers are being rational because many companies have this risk-averse and failure-based incentives once they scale up in growth expectations and in their cost structures. So Catmull decided, I need my company to accept failure, to embrace failure, because the whole creative endeavor of producing a new product of high quality with originality is going to be taking some knocks over time. It's going to be failing every now and then. We can now look at some of the other tools that Catmull uncovered and uses at Pixar to create this constant cycle of originality and accepting failure. So one of the first processes that he's implemented is this idea that he calls dailies. And dailies are a way of getting constant feedback, this constant loop of editing. So he said, some people show their scenes to get critique from others. Others come to watch and see what kind of notes are being given, to learn from their peers and from me, my style, what I like and dislike. The dailies keep everyone in top form. It is an intimidating room to be in because the goal is to create the best animation possible. We go through every single frame with a fine tooth comb and over and over and over again. We're seeing this idea again, edit relentlessly. This is a lesson that I learned about a few years ago when I read a book by Adam Grant. He's this great psychological cognitive science researcher at University of Pennsylvania at Warden, and he wrote the book on creativity. He did a ton of research on how to produce originality and creativity. And one of his core findings was that just putting out a lot of output, putting out a lot of products without fear of perfection will lead to creative growth over time. It is basically when you've heard of studies in the past where two groups are assigned to work on, let's say, a painting, for example, and one group, they're given the goal, create as many paintings as possible, let's say, in an hour period. And the other group is given the task, create the most beautiful, the most perfect painting ever in the span of an hour. And you see from these studies, these are studies on creativity, you will end up seeing that the ones that were given the task to create a high quantity, not quality, end up in creative endeavors, creating even better quality at the end because they went through so much trial and error. They went through so many iterations. And this is the same lesson we're seeing at Pixar. You want to go through every single frame, these dailies, you want to go through every single frame over and over and over again, edit relentlessly until you find that great quality product in the end. And you have to embrace failure to be able to do that. You hear your suggestions from your peers, you hear where you can improve. And as Catmull says, when the embarrassment goes away, people become more creative. Now, another way that they battle mediocrity and unoriginal work is by taking research trips. He would say, even though copying what's come before is a guaranteed path to mediocrity, 
it appears to be a safe choice. And the desire to be safe, to succeed with minimal risk, can infect not just individuals, but also entire companies. When Pixar was prepping a movie about a Parisian rat who aspires to be a gourmet chef, for example, several members of Ratatouille's team went to France and spent two weeks dining in extraordinary Michelin-starred restaurants, visiting their kitchens and interviewing their chefs. Sounds like a dream job, if you ask me. In addition to visiting college campuses at Monsters University, they went to Harvard, MIT, some of these top colleges, and going to Venezuela, going to the mountains in Venezuela for the research behind Up. So the core lesson here for Catmull, research trips, obviously it could be very fun for teams, but really for the film, the end output to the film is that it's important to care about the little details. You see these little details in these films feel so real when you watch Ratatouille. I actually watched it yesterday. I wasn't feeling well, so I ended up watching a couple Pixar movies yesterday. But you watch these films and the details feel so real to you. They feel so well thought out and well researched because they spent the time to learn those details. And that, it just gives this slight edge to the quality bar that may seem subtle to viewers, but people definitely notice it. People notice these small perfections. I can imagine the people who created Luca certainly spent time in those small Italian cities like Cinque Terre learning what are the small intricacies that make up these beautiful colored buildings. So we see these little details, people care about it, they matter, and they stand out when you're trying to build for quality. The last tool that Catmull uses is this idea of postmortems. When the release date finally rolls around, everyone is ready to move on to something new. But we are not done yet. At Pixar, there is one more essential phase of the process, the postmortem. A postmortem is a meeting held shortly after the completion of every movie in which we explore what did and didn't work and attempt to consolidate lessons learned. Postmortems are something that we've spoken about in a few episodes now, most notably in episode three, Charlie Munger's episode. Many famous investors use this method where you want to look back on a process like an investment decision or a movie made and learn from your mistakes by analyzing what were the better steps you could have taken along the way. In my personal case, I was working on a real estate development, and as we were going through the diligence of a land site, as we were looking at this potential piece of land and evaluating whether it's a good site for development, we waited a couple months to hire our civil engineer. We hired an architect immediately, but we waited a few months to hire a civil engineer. And this ended up becoming somewhat of a problem for us because a few months later, we hire the engineer. They uncover a slight issue with the land site. Luckily, things ended up working out. But as we went through our postmortem for this project, this is a clear lesson that we took away saying next time, that's a step we could take much earlier. We would say next time, let's hire a civil engineer right upon taking the land site under consideration, doing the diligence. And in the same sense, 
Catmull is learning this lesson and applying this lesson within Pixar. You're able to consolidate all the lessons learned and find out what were some of the mistakes we made in the past, what were some of the poor decisions we made in our process, and how can next time we take a better path towards quality or towards our end goal. So he shares the five core reasons why you want to conduct a postmortem. And in the book, he goes through each of those in detail, but I'll just share the five. He says, you want to consolidate what's been learned. You want to teach others who weren't there. Don't let resentments fester. Use the schedule, this forced schedule of a postmortem to force reflection and ask the right questions next time. And he shares a really good question that we can all use in our own processes of postmortems, both investing cases or creative endeavors. He says, one technique I've used to soften the process is to ask everyone in the room to make two lists, the top five things that they would do again and the top five things that they wouldn't do again. So this is a great question that we could ask the people of our organization once we're reviewing the end product of, let's say, a multi-year initiative like with Pixar. It's three, four years making an animated film. You ask them, what would you do again? And across people, you're going to see a few things stand out as really the core steps and drivers of that project. And what are the five things that you wouldn't do again? What do you feel like were the collective mistakes or better steps that we could take next time in our creative endeavor? So I think postmortems are a phenomenal tool for both creative people and investment people to apply in their daily lives. I think at this point, we've learned a ton about how Catmull approached the job behind Pixar. He was not just leading an animated feature film company, but he was really leading a company that would need to sustain a creative culture over the long haul, over 20, 30, 40 years. One of the main factors that allowed Pixar to sustain this creative culture was really a continual learning culture. So Pixar, in a really interesting way, they'll offer fun classes that employees can take, like programming or even belly dancing, design theory, all different types of classes across different departments. And the goal of it is really to bring their employees together, no matter your job function. So you're working next to each other and building relationships in really a carefree setting. You're getting to know other people in the company in a low stress, carefree setting and build these relationships within your company. Now, this idea to continually learn, even in wild classes like belly dancing, for example, the reason it's so powerful is because it puts everyone in the beginner's mindset. It puts everyone in beginner's shoes. Catmull says, it taught everyone at Pixar, no matter their title, to respect the work that their colleagues did. And it made us all beginners again. Creativity involves missteps and imperfections. I wanted our people to get comfortable with that idea that both the organization and its members should be willing at times to operate on the edge. It was to send a signal about how important it is for every one of us to keep learning new things. 
That too is a key part of remaining flexible, keeping our brains nimble by pushing ourselves to try things we haven't tried before. So in some ways, Pixar is pushing this personal creative agenda, accepting a beginner's mentality and embracing failure in these fun classes like design and belly dancing, random classes, getting to know your peers at the company. And in many ways, that style of thinking, continually learning, also is training them on the business side at the same time. It's training their employees to accept failure in their business decisions as well as in their personal decisions with these fun endeavors. And in many ways as well, when I read this, I thought this is a really good way to reduce turnover amongst employees. We've talked about how you want to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, but the other key part about talent acquisition is reducing turnover. We've already learned from famous entrepreneurs like Sam Zell and Joe Coulomb how their strategy was also, I want to find the best people. People are really the core driver of my business. But at the same time, I want to have fun with them. I want to have fun when I work, enjoy working together. So Pixar is taking a very similar mantra, similar mindset. You want to continually learn. You want to put people who are in different departments to spend time with each other in a carefree setting, take these cool classes together. And in the basic sense, you're adopting this beginner's mindset. You're prepping your employees to be more willing to accept failure. I think now is a good time to transition to the Disney acquisition, which in 2005 was when Steve Jobs basically floated the idea of selling Pixar to Disney to Ed Catmull and John Lasseter. And that was really shocking to them because as we spoke about on the Disney episode, there were these huge fights between Steve Jobs and Michael Eisner, the old CEO of Disney. But they spoke about how Bob Iger was really the difference maker in this acquisition happening. So Catmull says, one of Bob's first acts as CEO had been to reach out to Steve in an effort to mend fences. They then struck a deal to make the top shows on ABC available on iTunes. And largely because of this, Steve trusted Bob. To Steve, that deal demonstrated two things. Iger was a man of action, and he was willing to buck the knee-jerk industry-wide trend to oppose distribution of entertainment content on the internet. The iTunes deal took about 10 days to complete. Iger didn't let entrenched forces get in the way. So this deal seemed to make sense for all parties. Steve Jobs at this point was very involved with Apple again, so he wasn't really as involved as the CEO of Pixar anymore. Bob Iger, as we spoke about last episode, had recognized that these Pixar characters were really taking over the Disney theme park, so that IP was integral for the future of Disney. And when Ed Catmull and John Lasseter looked at the deal, they were getting this prime opportunity to take Disney animation, once the storied franchise behind animation, and test their ideas behind embracing failure and feedback, the brain trust of employees, test their ideas in a new model, in a new company. So they end up 
Doing that, they're put in charge of Disney Animation as well as Pixar, and they turn around Disney Animation, who now, when you look back over the last decade, they have had massive hits come out of Disney Animation. Some, I would say, even bigger than the biggest Pixar hits. They've had movies like Frozen and Encanto a couple years ago, Zootopia. These are big movies that are already becoming franchises within Disney Animation. That is so great to see where Ed Catmull's ideas, these creative ideas are not just restrained to Pixar. It's not like one company it works perfectly for, but it also transferred over to Disney Animation and it could also transfer over to creative endeavors that we're working on. Some of the key issues that they had to work on early on once they joined Disney Animation and were trying to sort some of the issues in the company was that Disney Animation had this central feedback group. It was called Circle 7. And many of the notes would be sent from the top down from non-film executives. Like even Michael Eisner had to give notes on every movie they made. And one of the first simple things that Ed Catmull and John Lasseter did was they switched that to their candid feedback model, like the brain trust director and writer feedback model in Disney Animation. So Disney Animation ended up creating their own form of this. They call this story trust instead of brain trust. And that really allowed much more autonomy. The top talent really felt like they had their voice again. And it allowed people to embrace failure, to take more risks, to embrace originality in this creative project making. So that wraps up Ed Catmull's unbelievable book, Creativity Inc. If you're a fan of Pixar or you're really anyone in the creative space, the content space, I think this is really a must read. There's no way you should not read this book. It has incredible stories from the development of these favorite movies, childhood movies like The Incredibles, Finding Nemo, Up. It talks about in more detail the acquisition and some of the inside stories behind that Disney animation leadership. And it really shares these core traits of managing a creative culture. As we've spoken about, finding top talent, investing in people who are smarter than you, and embracing failure, being able to accept an iterative process of editing and embracing failure in that iterative process. He closes off the book with some really touching memories of Steve Jobs as a leader, really this evolution over their 25 years working together. So I would recommend this book to anyone. I personally loved it. This is my second time reading it. And I hope you guys liked the book. I hope you guys learned a lot. And thanks again for listening.